0: Welcome to the Richard Roper Show podcast. I am Richard Roper. Happy New Year to everyone who's listening and downloading and subscribing and sharing. We appreciate you oh so much. Really appreciate that, folks. Uh, Excited about the new year. We're going to be talking about lots of new movies, lots of new streaming shows, celebrating the anniversaries of a lot of famous movie releases, talking about all things pop culture as we have done for a few years now. And before that, of course, on the radio and continuing to do so on TV. And of course, you can get all my writings at the Chicago Sun Times website. Look for Richard Roper. You can just Google my name or go to suntimes.com. Uh, before we get into everything this week, I want to remind you the Richard Roper Show is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's online business environment, You need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, web development, e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing to drive your overall business success because they believe that today's online world is your online opportunity. We're going to start off with uh, some pretty heavy stuff. We want to talk about the situation with uh, Buffalo Bills safety, Damar Hamlin. As of this recording still remains in critical condition, obviously it's a very fluid situation by the time you might be listening to this things could have changed. And here's hoping and praying that they will have changed in a positive direction. Before this was the Richard Roper show, we used to call it screen time. And we talk about everything that you can get on a screen that includes not only movies and and streaming shows, but uh, all things pop culture and uh, sports coverage as well. And and in this case, the sports, uh, unfortunately, it became news as well. So I want to talk a little bit about the various facets of the uh, media coverage of this uh, horrific, almost unprecedented uh, occurrence uh, in that Monday night game between the Bills and the Cincinnati Bengals, I was watching it, uh, but as is often the case, it was the evening and when I'm watching sports, I'm doing three or four things at once. And I know you guys are as well. So I was in my home office and I was sitting at my desk and working on the desktop and answering emails and doing things like that. And the TV is a little bit in the corner, got the game on. So at first I just heard there was an injury report or an injury and an injury timeout, uh, but it quickly became apparent that this was not... Uh, just another uh, quote-unquote injury on the field. And, you know, as you guys know, that happens in every single football game, at least once and far too often more than that. And oftentimes they are very serious injuries, but rarely are they life-threatening. Go Way back in history, there was a player for the Detroit Lions in the 1960s named Chuck Hughes, 28-year-old wide receiver. Lions were playing the Bears, and he actually suffered a, a cardiac incident on the field and passed away within 24 hours it was not from a hit he took on the field it was a pre-existing condition but of course at the time people wondered if it had been a result of the play on the field uh you know the case uh monday what we know there was a you know there was a collision and there was a, a cardiac incident and um things quickly turned uh very somber uh in cincinnati As you saw, the players on on both teams uh, overcome with emotion, obviously the Bills for their teammate, the Bengals, because there's a brotherhood for sure in sports. Only the players really know everything they sacrifice, everything they risk uh, to go out there on the field for all that money and all that glory. But the risks are very high. You can look up all kinds of research about the fact that the average NFL player does not become independently wealthy for generational uh, money. Uh, plays maybe three or four years uh, and even a lot of the greats uh, suffer the effects of playing such a violent sport uh, in various ways. Uh, we've seen a lot of increased awareness about head trauma and concussion protocol, but it's still an exceedingly dangerous game. Still, this was a shocking, shocking moment by the time they were saying, well, they're going to give the players five minutes to warm up and, re- and continue the game. It was quite clear the players were not going to start playing again in five minutes. I want to say, you know, before we get into the various reactions that I think we have to, in almost every case, give a little bit of leeway to everybody involved because it's something happening in real time. It's unexpected. Sports journalists and a lot of them are very good journalists uh, had to segue into becoming news reporters and you want to err on the side of caution. You don't want to speculate. And yet you have all kinds of airtime to fill. So, you know, the minutes went by and by, and they're administering uh, CPR to DeMar on the field. And that's when it became, you know, really, really obvious that this was a life-threatening situation. And, you know, listen, I was one of the many people who went on Twitter very quickly and did say, you got to postpone this game. By the time the players were sent to the locker room and the ambulance was finally uh, heading to the hospital, there was no way in the world these players were going to return to the field. And the players knew that and the coaches knew that. Now... That call cannot be made by the players, although you certainly can't force them to go out there. That has to come from New York and the Commissioner's Office. And Roger Goodell clearly was on the phone. There was a lot of back and forth, but the officials in the meantime were meeting with the coaches. The players were, you know, gathered in their respective locker rooms. And I, if the NFL had somehow insanely and stupidly said we're going to continue this game, you know, in an hour. I do believe that the players would have refused to go on the field and it would have been a, a debacle in more ways than one for for the NFL so they made the right call to postpone the game I thought the fans in Cincinnati were incredibly respectful and and somber and it became about something much bigger than football and they filed out very quietly and respectfully you know this was going to be one of the marquee NFL matchups between two Super Bowl contenders with a lot of playoff positioning and all that shit on the line. And all of a sudden that didn't matter while it was happening. You know, you got to look at things from the point of view of, of you know, okay, first of all, you got uh, Joe Buck and Troy Aikman in the booth. And in the first half hour to 40 minutes, that most of the time kept updating on what we knew. And Joe Buck would keep saying, you know, that's all we know. We can't really add anything else. So let's go to a break. And you know, I know some people will be like, "Well, come on, you got to, you got to stick with it." Well, I think again, you have to be careful what you say, and you're better off saying, "Listen, we don't know uh, what's going on any more than you do. Uh, we're not getting any official word yet from from anybody from the team or or anything like that. So, let's just keep the cameras going. Let's keep the live broadcast going, and then eventually they would go over to the studio crew of Susie Kolber. Uh, Booger McFarland and Adam Schefter, who I thought did a, a a very responsible and solid job in you know providing context, providing analysis, but also telling us we don't know more than you know right now, watching at home. And as the minutes and hours went by, ESPN then segued to Scott Van Pelt uh, with Ryan Clark, a terrific analyst who's also a former player who has been seriously injured, who I thought was just absolutely. Insightful and passionate and moving and informative. Uh, let's take a little bit of a listen uh, to Ryan Clark.
1: Outside of football that no one ever wants to see mm-hmm. or never wants to admit exists. When you see both teams on the field crying in that way, your first thought is DeMar Hamlin. Yep. The second thought is his family. And this isn't about a football player, right? This is about a human. This is about a brother. This is about a son. This is about a friend. This is about someone who is loved by so many that you have to watch go through this. I dealt with this before and I watched my teammates for days come to my hospital bed and just cry. I had them call me and tell me that they didn't think I was gonna make it. And now this team has to deal with that and they have no answers. Mm-hmm. And so the next time I think that we get upset at our favorite fantasy player <laughs> or we're, we're upset that the guy on our team doesn't make the play and we're saying he's worthless and we're saying you get to make all this money we should remember that these men are putting their lives on the line to live their dream and tonight Demar Hamlin's dream became a nightmare for not only himself but his family and his entire team
0: you know it was it was just it was amazing to watch and and devastating and terrifying and uh, you know then there were reporters stationed outside the hospital we saw Stefan Diggs in street clothes making his way to the hospital to to try to be with his brother in arms and 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 support him. We heard that DeMar's family was at that game. We saw a footage of him taking a photo with his mother and selfies before the game. And his family had to come down from the stands. You know, you think about it, he's 24 years old and this is his lifelong dream. He was a, a good player in college, but not a guaranteed pro. And here he is playing, you know, on the biggest stage imaginable. What a night of celebration. And then it turns into this night of tragedy. So the reporting, you know, it was, again, trying to keep up with things, trying to keep people informed, but also trying not to overstep boundaries. Now, there were a couple of controversies, as you would expect. Here's a story from... This is from uh, Jenna Lemoncelli of the New York Post. NFL players, NBA players, and retired pro athletes are calling for Skip Bayless to be fired for comments he made in the aftermath of Bills' safety. DeMar Hamlin suffering cardiac arrest on the field during Monday Night Football. After the Bills' bengal game was suspended in Cincinnati, the Undisputed, that's the name of the show, the Undisputed co-host took to Twitter to chime in on the situation. Here's what Skip Bayless tweeted. No doubt the NFL is considering postponing the rest of this game, but how? This late in the season, a game of this magnitude is crucial to the regular season outcome, which suddenly seems so irrelevant. Immediately, uh, players, former players, uh, and a lot of fans weighed in just saying, you know, Terrell Owens, for example, the Hall of Fame wide receiver, called it the most despicable tweet ever saying, I hope you lose your job. ESPN analyst Kendrick Perkins wrote, you're a sick individual. NBA point guard Isaiah Thomas said, I hope they fire you, bro. For you to even think of the game is very sad. On and on it goes. I agree with all of that. I I don't necessarily want to get into or or condone the idea that you should be fired. Uh, I think there should definitely be some sort of, there's already been an apology, but, you know, okay, take that for what it is. But definitely some sort of discipline. Skip Bayless is a broadcaster who prides himself on stirring up the pot, saying controversial things. The kind of guy that people love to hate. I personally don't have the time and energy to hate a sports broadcaster. I've done a couple of radio gigs with him way back in the day. You know, he's a slick operator. He's very smart. He knows what he's doing. I don't particularly find his insights when I do tune in or see him on Twitter that insightful. It seems like he's more about like riling people up. And he certainly did that here. But yeah, it 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 was a bullshit tweet. It was horrible. And at the end of where he says the game suddenly seems so irrelevant. Well, you should have re- listened to yourself, pal. Don't talk about the game. And there were some other people who, and this was in the very early stages, but it was already clear that this was a serious injury in the very early stages when DeMar Hamlin was still on the field being tended to, where people were weighing in about, oh, I've got a bet in this game. Oh, what about the playoffs? Who gives a shit? You know, that, that's, that's, if you're thinking of tweeting something like that, And I, you know, we've said this many times on the podcast, if you have doubts, about something you're about to tweet, don't tweet it. If you have doubts about something you're about to email to somebody, hang on to it for a day and see if you really want to say that. That's certainly uh, the case here with this. So, you know, a lot of ill-advised reactions. A quick sidebar to get into the obviously inconsequential in the grand scheme of things uh, details. What we do know now in terms of the scheduling is they're not going to play this game between the Bengals uh, and the Bills this week. I think that's very wise. But those two teams have games this Sunday I think they're going to play those games, and then they're going to then figure out if this game needs to be replayed for playoff seating purposes, et cetera. There's a one-week cushion the NFL can work with because right now is a two-week cushion between the end of the playoffs and the Super Bowl, so they can maneuver and manipulate things in a way so that they can still continue with the schedule. But yeah, things are going to have to be moved. It's interesting if you look uh, historically at uh, the... Unfortunately, this has not happened a lot, but there have been a couple of times when Huge uh, tragedies have overshadowed the game. Uh, in 1963, John F. Kennedy was assassinated on November 22nd, and the NFL did play just two days after JFK's assassination. Pierre Salinger was the press secretary, uh, and he actually urged then Commissioner Pete Rozelle to play the games. You know that kind, sort of the same mentality they had during World War II, where they're like, even though these rosters are depleted, we need to keep playing baseball. Americans need that. At the time, there was the National Football League and the American Football League before they merged. The the AFL canceled its slate, but the NFL did play. Uh, if you Google, there's some amazing stories about out there about how the Dallas Cowboys played in Cleveland. And of course, uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, and a lot of people blamed the city, which obviously wasn't fair. It's not the city's fault, although there was certainly a climate of hostility toward JFK at the time. But when the Dallas Cowboys, who had nothing obviously to do with it, and and were from all over the country, when they went up to Cleveland, uh, hotel bellhops refused to help them out. The fans booed and issued threats, and it was just the the game between the Cowboys and the Browns was one of the worst games in NFL history in terms of the the crowd um, heckling, the lack of attendance. It was only a little more than half full, I think, and and the players on both sides not really wanting to play. In two thousand one. Uh, They were early in the NFL season when when 9-11, the the tragedy of 9-11 and the terrorist attacks happened. And it was decided not to play uh, week two, to postpone week two, Um, especially uh, pointing you know, the Jets and the Giants. uh, Before the league even made a ruling, uh, I know Vinny Testaverity of the Jets and other players simply said, if you make us play, I'm not going to go out there, just so you know. So the NFL, I think, did the right thing. The world season playoffs, remember, all of that was postponed back then in 2001. Uh, This is a unique case. I do think it's – there's no way you can imagine – I'm recording this right now, guys, on a Tuesday. You might be listening later this week or or sometime in the future, but it's, it's hard to imagine getting those two teams back onto the field in Cincinnati even a few days after this incident. I think it's going to be very hard for them to play separate games on Sunday, um, but they will. Here's another one. And again, this happens every time there's breaking news, every time, especially when there's some sort of tragedy or death, some people will uh, want to jump on it and use it to pivot to their own agendas. So here's a story from, this is from David Gilbert of Vice. Within minutes of Buffalo Bills safety, DeMar Hamlin collapsing on the field on Monday night, anti-vaxxers were posting wild conspiracies, and I should add, completely unfounded conspiracies, which all conspiracies truly are, blaming the NFL star's condition on the COVID-19 vaccine. That's right. They immediately pivoted to their anti-vaxxing stance. Uh, Hamlin collapsed after a tackle on Cincinnati Bengals wide receiver T. Higgins in the sixth minute of the first quarter. Uh, Hamlin initially stood up, then collapsed. The Bills have said that Hamlin suffered a cardiac arrest following a hit. It can happen from that type of hit to the chest. It has happened to other athletes. And yet you had people, I'm not even going to mention this this one person. He's a former Newsmax host. and Newsmax is, is the most ridiculous name for an organization that never maxes out on actual news. Uh, But this former Newsmax host says, I know what everyone with any common sense is thinking. This is the first time a pro athlete had had this happen. And then he put two needle emojis next to his tweet. Charlie Kirk, who's a very popular founder of uh, Turning Point USA. This is a tragic and all too familiar site right now. Athletes dropping suddenly. There's a lot of tweets out there that either insinuated or directly said that this was something that occurred because COVID-19 vaccines can, can cause this. Uh, there's absolutely no evidence that that was the case. And it's despicable to speculate and advance your wild conspiracy theories when someone, a young man, is fighting for his life. I want to do read this tweet from, this is Dr. Khalid Aljibri, uh, who says, my prayers are with Damar Hamlin. As an arrhythmia specialist, I believe the blow to his chest during a certain period in the cardiac cycle, triggered ventricular fibrillation, a condition called commotio cordis. It is not associated with pre-existing heart damage or COVID. I think the science is the the way to go with this. As always, listen to the science. Uh, let's end this uh, discussion on a much more positive note. Uh, This is a news story. And again, this is um, I'm reading this to you guys on a a Tuesday evening. So the numbers will no doubt even go up, have gone up even more. Fans are showing their support for Bill's safety. Demar Hamlin, who went into cardiac arrest in Monday night's game by donating to his foundation's toy drive. As of Tuesday afternoon, donations have exceeded four point three million dollars. Hamlin started the toy drive in 2020 through his charity, the Chasing Ems Foundation, to raise money and buy toys for children who were impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. It's hometown of McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. The GoFundMe account remained open after the 2020 toy drive, and the website has counted more than 159,000 individual donations. All kinds of fans, professional athletes, et cetera, et cetera, have sent in donations, and you know there was a lot of uh, a lot of positive reaction and response all the sincere calls for prayers and good thoughts all the donations all the unified uh, feeling and and community And most people, you know, realizing this is a very, very serious uh, situation. It's not the time for politics. It's not the time to worry about football. It's time to rally behind a young man who I think a lot of us, let's quite frankly, unless you were a hardcore NFL fan or really knew the game, not all of us knew that much about DeMar Hamlin until this horrible, horrible tragedy. And what we're learning is that this is an absolutely uh, wonderful, giving, thoughtful, Uh, lovely person who's just 24 years old, folks. And that's the thing that that, that has to be kept in mind. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back on the other side, we're going to talk about some of the new releases that have just come out.
2: they're known for their famous Chicago hot dogs with all the freshest and tastiest ingredients right down to the poppy seed bun and of course their legendary chocolate cake but that's just the beginning my friends the menu has mouth-watering varieties of favorites from a charbroiled burger to an Italian beef to a Mm -hmm. cheese fry to a chopped salad and the chocolate cake oh man oh yeah If you are a fan of this podcast or heard any other episode of this, you know how I feel about the chocolate cake. It's the greatest chocolate cake in the history of chocolate or cake. Portillo's also has locations throughout the Midwest and in Florida, California, and Arizona. Order curbside pickup or delivery today. Ship Portillo's anywhere in the United States of America by ordering at portillos.com. That's P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S dot com. I want you to understand how good a woman your mama was. She took Colton Briggs, the coldest killer that I've ever met, and she turned him into a family man.
0: My mama's dead now.
2: Tell me the names of the men who did this. As long
1: as that little girl is alive, there's no room for vengeance.
2: You boys woke up the damn.
0: that is a clip from a movie called the old way it's a western starring Nicolas cage it's kind of interesting you think of all the movies Nicolas cage has done he's had a 40 year career he's had more than 100 roles believe it or not this is the first western Nicolas cage has ever starred in he's, he's done a lot of films that are kind of modern day westerns but this is his first traditional western uh movie called the old way it's not great i'm just going to tell you guys right now it's okay uh, it's, it's very much a traditional revenge Western, uh, Nicholas cage. I will say this. He plays it straightforward. This is not one of his wild over the top performances. He plays this former gunslinger who now is living with his wife and daughter on a, on the obligatory, you know, dream house in the meadow in the old West and is not looking for any danger, but his past comes back to haunt him when this posse of killers, uh, swoops down on the home one day while he's in town with the daughter. Well, Nicolas Cage's guy is in town with the daughter and they kill the wife. The wife gets killed and now he's got to shift back into gunslinger mode. That's pretty much the movie. So the one interesting thing I thought about this that made it a little bit different is that his 12 year old daughter, the the character of Nicolas Cage, who's Colton Briggs, which is a classic Western name, his 12 year old daughter, Brooke, who's played by Ryan Kier Armstrong. And remember, this is in the Old West before we even had this term, but it's clearly on the spectrum. Uh, she seems to have some sort of form of autism. She doesn't really feel anything, any empathy when her mother dies, which is unsettling, um, but also that lack of empathy comes in handy when she accompanies her father as they track down these killers to get their revenge. Kind of an interesting angle. They don't explore that enough. It just kind of devolves into your classic, you know, shoot them up. And the villains are unmemorable. You need really good villains in Westerns like this who are the equal to the anti-hero. so that we really think that they're that menacing. And these guys just aren't. I also want to go back uh, a little bit to a movie that came out right at the end of the year and is continuing to get a wider release and get an Oscar campaign, which is a bunch of nonsense because that's not going to happen. And that's Damien Chazelle's uh, Babylon. Let's take a listen.
2: I think what we have here in Hollywood is high art. It's... (laughs)
1: I always wanted to be part of something bigger, something that lasts, that means something. When I first moved to LA, <laughs> I got your face touchy, you know what
2: signs on all the doors read? No actors or dogs allowed. I changed that.
1: The girl seems nice.
2: She is. She has no idea what's next. I've never done nothing except disappoint people my whole life. But I made it on my terms, not theirs.
0: So as you might know by now this is this epic from the great director Damien Chazelle of um la la land and um, first man and lots of other great stuff and it's all about uh the sort of the end of the silent era the beginning of the talkies in old hollywood and it's got this amazing cast with brad pitt and margot robbie and all these great supporting characters and it's just all wretched excess and uh, i found it to be you know it's like three hours plus long and it's a long slog through a lot of uh scenes of projectile vomiting and urinating and uh defecating and drugging and sexing and all that kind of stuff uh, which makes actually old time hollywood look like hell you know makes Babylon. there you go uh so i i found it to be a huge misfire i mean there's a, a lot of effort the production values are amazing i think margot robbie's great but i think she had a rough year with amsterdam And Babylon, I don't think she gave great performances in either Amsterdam, which, by the way, is another period piece disaster, or in Babylon. She's over the top here with the New Jersey accent. Brad Pitt's a lot of fun, but he's done this kind of role before. So So just to remind you, uh, stay away from Babylon. If someone's trying to drag you to it, don't be dragged. All right, now let's talk about a couple of good things that are coming out. Uh, First of all, let's take a listen to Tom Hanks in A Man Called Otto.
2: Back, 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 back. What is he doing? Parallel parking. Parallel to what? Old neighborhood is falling apart these days. Get out of here. Nothing works now that you're gone. I brought you some food. Okay, bye. Are you always this unfriendly? I am not unfriendly. Okay, you're like a warm cuddle. You think you have to do everything on your own, but no one can can't stand watching one idiot try to teach another how to drive. It's lesson time. Thank you. Clutch in and brake. Brake, brake. The car is stopped. I almost hit the car. Mr. Ryan's a hybrid.
0: So here's the deal. Uh, this is from uh, Mark Forster as the director who did uh, Finding Neverland and a lot of other really terrific films. And A Man Called Otto is based on a Swedish film of the same name. Tom Hanks is the star in the title role and he plays that one guy on your block or that one guy at work. Who's just a crab ass. Always. He's the guy that, you know, is always complaining if people aren't following the rules of the condo association is leaving signs up in the kitchen at work saying, I'm going to clean out this refrigerator and nobody better touch my stuff. And he's just, he's just crabby. He's always looking for confrontations. The neighbors kind of put up with him. We learn that he's a widower and there's a backstory that would lead to them having some compassion. But then, of course, something has to happen because we can't just have a full story about a grumpy old man and some new neighbors move in. And they won't take no for an answer when it comes to them helping him, him helping them. And we know where this is going. It's a tearjerker. Uh, The backstory is, is really well done. In fact, Truman Hanks, who is Tom Hanks's real-life son, plays the young Otto, which is kind of terrific. And Tom Hanks is great here because he's always playing the hero and now he's playing, you know, the kind of darker guy, although of course because it's Tom Hanks, we know he's, you know, we know there's some good traits as well. So a man called Otto. Uh, this is what I like to call a, a parents movie because you could take your parents or you could watch this with your parents and it, you, and everybody can enjoy it. Now, that brings me to another movie coming out this week and this one's called Living
2: If only to be alive for one day. But I realize that I don't know how. Do you think we should alert the police, about? What will the police get? He's a couple of hours late for work. A couple of hours late for work. Who would ever have thought?
1: This man, who, until yesterday, was living a shell of an existence.
2: I very much do not wish to do
0: so. Now, here's the thing. We just talked about A Man Called Otto, which was based on a foreign film and stars a great actor as this unlikable old curmudgeon who makes some changes late in life. That's also the plot of Living. This is a British drama. It stars uh, the great Bill Nighy. You know him from the Pirates movies and, of course, Love Actually and tons of other great stuff. He's one of the best actors out there. And this movie is an adaptation of a Japanese film called Dikiru, which was directed by Akira Kurosawa back in the day. This is set in 1953 London. And Bill Nighy plays a guy who's basically the British ancestor of Otto. He's this crabby, uptight, uh, intimidating widower uh, who undergoes some late life changes. So on his on basic bones, it's the same movie, but it goes in different directions. And although Bill Nighy and, and Tom Hanks are, are world-class actors, they have very different ways of approaching them, uh, the respective material here. So another terrific film is called Living, starring the wonderful Bill Nighy. And we go from the sublime to the corrupt Netflix, which of course has a true crime documentary series just about every week for us. Uh, This one's called Madoff, The Monster of Wall Street. It's a four-part Netflix documentary series about late and notorious Bernie Madoff, who, as you probably know, pulled off the greatest, and I should say most terrible Ponzi scheme in the history of ever. Basically, $64 billion uh, that just disappeared uh, under uh, decades of Bernie Madoff's incredible outlandish brazen corruption here's a guy that was considered to be one of the leading minds on wall street he worked with the sec and nasdaq and uh, had its own incredibly successful trading firm but the whole time he was also operating the shadow company that never made a single trade concocted everything and it's like it's like watching a thriller seeing how this shadow office of bernie madoff's operated on the 17th floor of a building in manhattan uh, two floors beneath the legitimate firm but on the 17th floor. They had like old dot matrix printers and uh, cartons of documents that were all doctored. And they even had software that manufactured trades. He was taking people's money and just basically robbing Peter to pay Paul and trying to stay a step ahead of the billions and dollars of debt he had accumulated. But he never made a single trade. Uh, So it's called Made Off the Monster of Wall Street. It's on Netflix. It's uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, Some of the most compelling scenes are when we hear from the people who lost everything because it wasn't all zillionaires who were investing with Bernie Madoff. It was a lot of hardworking middle-class people, many of whom trusted Bernie Madoff with all of their money because their grandfather did. And then their grandmother or grandfather did. And then they, when they inherited that would say, well, he always took care of grandma and grandpa or mom and dad. So, and then all of a sudden woke up one day to find out that they had no money. that that everything was gone and they were most likely going to lose their house and everything they had. So years after Bernie Madoff's death, years after his arrest in the the late 2000s and his time in prison, uh, the repercussions of that uh, white-collar crime proved that it is certainly not a victimless crime, that that hundreds, if not thousands, of families were affected. So it's called Madoff, the Monster of Wall Street on Netflix. (music) People think they know this story.
1: Bernie Madoff has been arrested.
0: They think it's a story about one man. There is no way you can run a $50 billion Ponzi scheme and not have anybody else know about
2: it. Madoff was the scapegoat for the financial crisis. But in a blue collar crime, the bodies drop before you investigate. In a white collar crime, they drop afterwards. Bernie is managing money for some of the world's most dangerous people. He told me that if I am wrong, I have no out. I am a dead man. A hundred years from now, people will remember this story.
0: All right, that's going to do it for this edition of the Richard Rover podcast. As always, thanks to everybody for listening, and we'll see you again soon.